people. And so like, yeah. word of the Lord has uh, through Lindsay, you know, paying attention to those kind of things. Um, yeah, the Lord is speaking. He's with us. I, I just had a conversation with my son the other day. He's going to, he's a freshman, and they've just gone back to in-person at Hutch. And I told him, I was like, I loved when I was at your age getting to go to like new places or new starts in my life. Um, primarily because I thought, like, I need to reinvent who I am. And, and everybody in my family was, like, crazy offended in that moment. They're like, wait, what? You lied? I'm like, no, I didn't lie. I just chose to present myself in a different way. Like, when I was in junior high, I was, like, the hunter who had, like, uh, just pictures of dead things in my locker, right? And when I went to high school, I was an athlete, and I chose to, and, you know, get into basketball. And, and I got to kind of be a different person. Like, the weirdness that I was when I was junior high, I left behind. And I got to be somebody different, and it was great. Yeah. And everybody thought that that was, listen, they thought that that was heresy, and I was lying, and deceptive, and everything, and my whole family attacked me. But that's not what was happening. What was happening was, <laughs> I was finding my true identity as I was growing and maturing in who God created me to be, which is exactly what Lindsay was bringing up in tonight, is that the one person who knows who you should be and who you really are, you don't even know this. The Bible makes it very clear that no one knows their own heart. Only God does. So that's just, it's pretty cool stuff. So thanks for preaching for us, Lindsay. It was absolutely outstanding. I am excited about tonight. Um, and here with much trepidation, as I announced last week, we're talking about hell, which is really going to be, uh, hopefully, a, an encouraging time. That. Uh, tonight's message is actually called The Hope of Hell. Um, and we're going to dig through some, I know, right? It's like this crazy idea that there could be a hope in hell. But we're going to attempt to see how God is connected into this, uh, this place that we read about in Scripture. And somehow has been turned into like a cartoon with a pitchfork and flames going up. Or uh, what's that movie, the Thor movie, where they're, you know he's got that big skull thing here? Help me out. What is that? Right, 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 right. Oh, okay, well, who's the guy? Sir. The fact that you guys know that is a shame. All right. So, <laughs> so yeah, you're not supposed to know. All right. So, uh, the, you know, that's not what the Bible talks about. That picture of what hell is in that situation is not necessarily uh, it's not. It's not what we see in scripture. Obviously hell is a very serious topic. It's one that we should approach with uh, a serious mindset. And so we're going to tonight, um, and some of you may be asking this question, like Paul, you're, like, you get us for maybe a couple years. The average UAF student that's connected with Alpha is probably a, three semesters, maybe four, and then they're off doing something else. They, they freeze to death and they go to a different campus. Or, you know, there's just the transition that happens in this community is, is pretty astounding, which is great because we get to see a lot of people come through our community. We get to see God move in their lives. And then hopefully they connect with God, they grow, they mature, and then they can set off and go to different places. The motion or the motive of Chi Alpha is not to grow a large community. It's to develop disciples who know and love God, who know how to make disciples, tell other people about God's love. And they do that for the rest of their lives. Like this is like, we, we view this as a training ground, as an opportunity to prepare students to be followers of Christ forever, for eternity. That's my goal. 
And so when we approach Chi Alpha or these gathering services, it's not because this, I don't approach it as, as like a normal church service. This is, in my mind, an opportunity for me to give you kind of a, a catalyst, a, a moment for when you get together in your small groups to have something to discuss, to, to challenge, to argue about, to grow in, to work through. The Bible talks about working through your faith. And so let me just pause and say, if you're not in a small group, you need to jump in a small group. Yeah. That yeah. is like discipleship one-on-one. You want to grow with God, help each other, spur one another out in your relationship with God, challenge one another, work through this stuff, and I promise you, as you do that, the Lord's going to show up, and you're going to begin to be formed into your true identity. Yeah. But each semester, we've got like 13, 14 weeks, right? So I get, at best, you know, 30 to 40 touches in most of your lives, uh, in these speaking moments, in your entire college career, on average. And so the question that I would ask, or maybe you're asking, is why in the world are we talking about hell? If we've only got that many times to talk about stuff in God's Word, why are we doing this? And the truth is, is that hell is a critical doctrine, a critical component of the Christian faith. And I'll be honest, in our world, it's not really PC to talk about hell, right? It's not something you're going to hear that comes up. In fact, there are preachers that proclaim they will never talk about this part because there's enough bad things in the world. Why would they want to bring up this topic? We can talk about happiness and joy and peace. And, and those are all wonderful characteristics of God. And they're wonderful pieces of what it means to follow Christ. But if we neglect this, what it means is is that we neglect the truth of Christianity. And the truth of Christianity is simply this. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. Yeah. Do you understand? Yeah. That, that if we push hell aside or choose to make this idea that hell doesn't exist and, and God would never do such a thing, and we're going to talk about all that stuff tonight. But if we go to down that road, what we're saying is, is that, that humans and their happiness and, and the, the political correctness of we don't want anybody to help solve at all in any way, shape, or form actually puts humanity at the center of the universe. And what we know is that is not true. Yeah. God, the God, the one God is at the center. Yeah. And two weeks ago we talked about the nature and the character of God. And all the things we discussed are true about that, about that character, that nature of who he is, but this is also a piece of who God is. Hell was created. That means that it didn't happen before God, it came from God. And some of you are already like, oh my Lord, how can this be? How can this possibly be the same loving God? And we're going to get to that. But before we do, uh, we're going to explore a couple different things. All right, so... Um, let me just be open and honest that uh, I don't like the idea of hell. Um, I don't like all of the implications that go with it. I've wrestled with it for years. I go up and down and all around. And if you don't wrestle with hell, you probably don't know much about it, and you should. Um, it is in the Bible. It's in the Bible actually quite a bit. Um, in fact, uh, well, we'll get there. Um, so let's let's do this. We're, tonight we're not going to um, dig into like crazy theological discussions, we can go there, but it'll be like drinking from a fire hose. Instead, what I want us to do is look at like six questions that I think are most, that have been most asked of me 
throughout the 20 years of ministry that I've been having. And then we're going to look at a, a story that Jesus tells about Lazarus and the rich man and hell and try to understand what our response should be. Now, I'm going against all the advice my wife has given me. Um, so this afternoon, we're working through, we're, I'm finalizing this message. And she says, whatever you do, don't do this and this. It's too much. And I'm like, well, I wrote through the sermon. I've got this sermon, the three responses now. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm these questions. And so we're doing both. So I'm sorry, Christian. Um, we're doing both. I love it. You guys are all my friends. You know what I want to hear about. All right. So we're going to start with uh, question number one. This is kind of basics, Christianity 101. Uh, what happens when we die? So we're going to start with a little bit of a, a story, and then we'll actually answer the question. When Crystal and I and our family were missionaries overseas uh, in Southeast Asia, we uh, were working with um, some folks that um, did not walk with God. In fact, they were Buddhist monks. Uh, we were in a country that was communist, it was closed, uh, it had restricted gospel, so missionary Christianity was not allowed. Um, and so we invited a couple of the monks that we were friends with. I'd been going and learning Lao and English, and they were learning English from me in the temple. So I'd go to the temples, sit with these guys, we became friends, and I invited them over for Christmas. And I thought to myself, this is going to be a great opportunity for me to help them understand what Christmas is about. It's a little side note, but, but when I asked them, do you, what do you know about Christmas? They said, well, this is when Christians worship trees. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> they said, yeah, you decorate the trees, you give the trees presents, this is what the things to do. And I'm like, no! Okay. And I told them, in the corner of our house, we had a tree. So, I'm like, uh, uh, context matters, guys. All right, so, uh, my daughter, she's like four years old at this time, uh, she's in the room, Madeline, are you know, there you are. Um, she did not want to live overseas. In fact, when we moved overseas for the first two years, she was like two, uh, the words out of her mouth was, I don't belong here, I don't want to be here, take me home, I don't like you. And it was just kind of this perpetual argument of, I don't like this food, I don't like this place, it's too hot. And it was just kind of this thing. And our response was, God called us here to tell people about Jesus so that they can go to heaven. And when we tell them about Jesus and they accept him and they are able to go to heaven, we can go home. And so this is kind of the first moment we've got these monks in our home. And my daughter, who's four, walks up to this monk. Now, you have to understand, in the Buddhist context, you do not touch a monk. It's just like football. And especially women do not touch monks. It's just, you don't do it. And so my four-year-old walks up to this monk who's in the full robes, like our orange, shaved head, no eyebrows, the whole deal. And he... She grabs a hold of his rope, like, full fist. <laughs> she starts jerking out of the rope. She looks at him and says, listen, Jesus is God, and it is not. You <laughs> can go to heaven, I can go home. <laughs> Which introduces us to this idea that there is an afterlife. And so what happens when we die? I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. There are theological books written all about this, thousands and thousands of pages. But this is just the, the gist. So when you die, there is a separation of the body and the spirit. So God created humans with thinking, feelings, moral persons made up of spirit, and body which are tightly joined together, right? You are all of that meshed up in one. 
But death is not actually natural or normal for humanity. This is not God's intention. We are not supposed to die. Sin caused sickness and death. And as a result, the soul gets ripped from the physical body. Death is the, is the tearing apart of these two intertwined parts. And at the end of life on this earth, the body goes to the grave and the spirit goes into an afterlife to eventually face judgment. Okay. So upon death, in Luke chapter 16, which we will read later, Jesus tells us that after death, immediately, the spirit will either go to heaven to be with Jesus or go uh, to hell to be in suffering and torment. Okay? So the righteous and the wicked are immediately placed in one of these places. They have consciousness. They either have peace or they have suffering. So this is what we would consider an intermediate space before we know as the final judgment. So in Revelation, what happens is, is Jesus comes back. He sucks up all the saints by the giant vacuum. You guys know this? Just kidding. I'm totally being sarcastic. And if you think that I'm, okay, be careful. Don't believe Okay, yeah. I'm just all of a sudden starting to feel like I'm being radical, and I don't want to be radical. <laughs> um, so what happens is that Jesus comes back, and he takes the saints up to heaven. And when he does that, there's this event called the judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, okay? And he judges between the wicked and the dead. And in that moment, the, the Christians, or those that have followed Christ and surrendered their lives to him, those who chose to conform to his character, his nature, and his will, to worship him, get judged, but judged in a good sense, but given rewards. Those that have perpetually rejected God throughout their lives, they continue to reject Him, get judged, and they get eternally separated into another place, different Greek word, but another place that we would refer to as hell, or, you know, the fire, lake of fire, okay, in the Bible. And this is the permanent place for all of those that are set aside who are in opposition to God, His goodness, His character of love and grace and peace. So this place was designed not for people, it was designed for Satan and the angels that rebelled against God because when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, He doesn't want it spoiled with sin like this one was. Do you understand? And so there is a permanent separation that happens with all of those that reject and, and rebel against God. Alright, so that is what happens after you die. Does that make sense? C.S. Lewis, this was a critical theology or question that got answered in his life. You guys know who C.S. Lewis is? He's one of our favorite authors. He's got wonderful books. We pass them out. But he is a deep thinker about the things of God. And he said that when this became an understanding for him, it shook my dozing soul. And through the cold water of reality in my face, so that life and God and heaven and hell broke into my world with glory and horror. Okay, most serious moments. So what is hell and what does the Bible teach about hell? I'm going to say it. Does that make sense? When we get serious, I don't want to be too like, demonstrative. Anyway. So when we think of hell, we often think of the cartoon. We talked about this, the planes, the movie, Thor. And Mark Twain, you guys know who he is, right? Mark Twain is famously quoted as saying, I want to go to heaven for the climate, but I want to go to hell for the company, right? <coughs> our culture, our uh, society seems to think that this is perhaps a joke. Uh, the problem is, is that hell is not a joke, and it's definitely not a party. The Bible often speaks of hell 
In fact, 162 times it comes up. Jesus talked about hell more than heaven. In fact, 50% of his parables talk about eternal damnation. 13% of all of his words in the entire New Testament deal with hell. You see, there's no denying the fact that Jesus knew, believed, and warned his hearers about the absolute reality of hell. So what is it? All right, so here's the first thing that I want you to understand, is that hell is real. Now, there's tons of arguments that there, you get out loud and you look this up. Some people firmly believe that hell is the center of this terra firma, like it's in the earth. Uh, there are lots of theologians that would argue that hell, because it's not a physical punishment, it's a spiritual punishment, that it is just this existence thing that happens that God sets aside. It honestly doesn't matter. What matters is that you understand that it's real and that it's not somewhere you want to be. The, the thing that is most concerning about hell is that the Bible chooses, the authors of the Bible often choose, including Jesus, to use metaphors to describe hell. And, and this can and has very mistakenly been used to say, well, see, it's just, it's just a metaphor. It's actually not real. They're misunderstanding this, that they're using a metaphor to describe something that is so horrific and so horrible that human words cannot describe it. And so the fact that metaphor is being used actually is more terrifying to me than if they just said it was a really bad place. Do you guys with me? Yeah. Okay, so these are some of the things that are said about that. It's created, so Matthew 25, 41, it's created for the devil and his angels. It is torment in Luke 16, 23. Hell is punishment. Punishment. It is punitive. Now we don't like this, and we'll talk about this in a minute. But it is a punitive place. It has unquenchable fire. In Mark chapter nine, verse forty, it is perpetual. The Bible says the worm does not die. Now we're like, wow, worms don't die and go fishing. Great. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the worms that exist inside of your body, or oils or sores that provide perpetual agony. You guys with me? All right. So uh, hell is eternal, from which there is no return. Hell is horrible. Uh, Jesus compared it to Gehenna, um, which is an actual place. Uh, the valley of Gehenna is uh, outside of Jerusalem. And during that time in history, it was the garbage dump for Jerusalem. And so this valley is where everybody took their refuse. And it was a place filled with magnets and flies, and just as you can imagine, the refuge refuse of thousands of people stuck in a valley. This is what it is. And it was perpetually on fire. And so this is one of the pictures that Jesus chooses to use for what hell will be like. But perhaps the worst uh, picture of what hell is, is what I always call it, is isolation from God. Isolation from God and all that is good. So in Matthew 25, 30, it says that hell is a place where people are put out into the outer darkness. And there is a disconnect from everything good that God has created. So if you can't imagine a place with no love, with no joy, no happiness, no peace, and it only has suffering all the time, and all of a sudden you begin to recognize that hell is a very, very bad place. What's interesting, much well, it's interesting, one of the reasons that it is such a bad place is because God has chosen to vacate all of his goodness from his face. 
And so sin and evil and wickedness, the things that are sown into our lives, the things that, that rebel against God, that they're allowed to go rampant. There's no sermons to correct them. There's no people to, to say, no, no, don't lie, cheat, or steal. No, we want to be good. We want to be moral. And so the, the most tiny seed of wickedness that is inside of, of humanity begins to grow and flourish, and it grows perpetually for eternity. And it finds its fruition and its fruitfulness in this place. It is unimaginable. When we were in Asia, we traveled to nations where, like I said before, Christianity was rejected, outlawed, persecuted. And it was amazing that we would cross the airspace, or we would get out a bridge and we would drive across the river into a nation that rejected everything about God. And I could physically feel the difference because of the, the lessening of the absence of God's grace and mercy and joy. It's a scary, scary concept. So the next question, you guys still with me? Yeah. yeah. Shaking your yeah. Um, the, the next question is, is, why does hell exist? Have you guys ever asked this question? Like, what's the point? Um, so the first one, we already answered, Matthew 25, 41, says that it was created as a place of punishment for Satan and his fallen angels. The next reason that hell exists that, that you may not recognize, but God's justice actually demands that. It demands it. Just like our society demands prisons. It demands punishment for crimes. God's justice demands hell because if you look around in this world, it is broken. And people are depraved, and we do things to other people that cause harm and damage, and all of a sudden, these actions must be dealt with. What's interesting is the people that ask the question, why does hell exist, usually ask the same question as, well, why does suffering exist? And I'm like, well, hell exists to deal with suffering, right? Because humanity has allowed the sin and the depravity of of our lives to create suffering in the world, and therefore it needs to be dealt with. God's justice, part of his character, must be lived out. One of the things that comforts me about this is that scripture is super clear that no one will be in hell who doesn't deserve to be. God's goodness, listen this, is displayed when he came to earth to solve the problem of hell. We're going to get into uh, the, the, some of the major objections about how next. But I, I just want you guys to recognize that the character of God cannot be betrayed. So God cannot go back on who he is and what he has claimed to be. And so if God says that I'm a just God, and that the wicked will be punished, you have to understand there has to be a mechanism to do that. All right, so what are the major objections about hell? You guys with me? All right. So the first major objection that I hear about hell all the time is a loving God would never send millions or billions of people to a horrible place. This is an interesting argument. Uh, but in a very important sense, you need to understand that God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go to hell. The only ones in hell are those who have rejected his revelation. And you're going, well, there's lots of 
concerns about that, and we'll get to them in a minute, but choosing to suppress the truth that he made plain to them, God made people in his image. After his likeness, with the power to say no and to reject the universal revelation of himself. What that means is that God created us autonomous because he wanted beings that could authentically love himself. But in order to have authentic love, you have to have the capacity to reject. Right? You guys with me? And so what God did when he created us is he created in us, the image of God, the capacity to reject himself. And as a result, we have authentic love. But we can worship God like no other creature that has ever existed. But at the same time, we can reject him like no other creature has ever. So, subsequently, sinners have no one to blame but themselves if they are damned to hell. I'll probably hear about that later. My daughter's going to be like, you said the word damn. All right, so. <laughs> to get to hell, some of us reject God, who shows them his goodness and out of love for all, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If you reject the Spirit, you convict. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is in the world, convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. If you reject the Holy Spirit and reject the crucified Son, who said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to himself, it is our decision. It is not God's uh, casting out. We have willfully chosen to reject him. All right. So, with that said, God has been exceedingly gracious to us. Do you guys see that? That his grace, his mercy is exceedingly gracious. Because hell is only for those who persistently reject the real God in favor of false gods. So God is both loving and just. They are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they have to work together. And love does not mean a lack of consequences. And this is where the cross becomes incredibly crucial. I've been asked so many times, why did Jesus need to die on the cross? Why did that need to happen? It needed to happen so that God's justice could be satisfied. He had to have the satisfaction of justice so that mercy and grace could be extended to you and I. Because it's through the cross that these two characteristics of God, justice and love, are able to be in alignment simultaneously. This is a, like, write this down. The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not comprising the righteousness, compromising the righteousness of God. So the wisdom of God devised a way that the love of God could deliver sinners from the justice of God or the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. Essentially, God worked really, really hard to fix your truths. He was desperate so that you could be in relationship with him. And he was so desperate that he said, you know what? I'll even come down there and go through all the misery that they created out of the perfect planet that I designed for them. I will suffer. I will die. I will climb on the cross. I will go to hell for three days. I will get the keys and I will set them free. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's a big deal. Yeah. But you have to choose it. So a loving God would be more tolerant. This is the big objection. God would be more tolerant of this. And so, we, you know, he shouldn't just 
you know, send people to hell. People who, who judge God need to really consider that if they would be more pleased that God would tolerate of everyone, including people like rapists, pimps, pedophiles, and all those lights, and even those who have sinned against them most heinously. The idea is completely absurd and unjust. Not everyone in this house is like one of those people, but everyone there chose sin over God throughout his or her entire life. Not just for the good, but for the ungodly. 
The Bible literally says that he was willing to die for us while we were sinning, while we were spinning in his face. He still loved us and he still died for us. And because of that, we were sinners and we were his enemies. And to say it another way is that Jesus was willing to suffer and die and make a way for even mean people like me. The God who will suffer and die for mean people, in fact, is not me. He's love. God alone is altogether loving. To be condemned by a God of perfect love shows how damnable sin is in our lives. Alright. So believe it or not, hell displays God's love, mercy, grace, and hope, which points us to Him. It's this very place it gives us hope in the cross. All right, so the fourth question that people ask, the last question or, or problem they have with hell, is that eternal torment in hell is an unjust punishment for people who sin for a finite or a few decades of time. Right? Like, that would make sense. Like, how can God punish people forever for, like, breaking his laws for, let's say, 75 years? You know? That seems a little biased. Like the punishment doesn't fit the crowd. And that's why uh, there's doctrines called like annihilation or purgatory. Because people don't like the answer to this. The fact that the Bible says repeatedly that heaven is eternal uh, does not sit well with us because we wrestle with this idea. But this is what you need to understand, is that it's not the length of sin that is a problem, it's the height of sin. It's the, the depth and the horribleness of the sin that is in our lives. And we have trivialized sin. You guys need to understand that in our culture, we don't even call it sin. We just say, I made a mistake. Like, I messed up. It's not that big of a deal. I'll sort it next time. Because grace and mercy is so pervaded in our culture, even in the church, that we've forgotten that God hates sin. Alright. So John Piper, who is a wise, wise man, a guy that I enjoy very much, he says this, and this made a lot of sense to me. He said, if God is of infinite value, which he is, of infinite beauty, infinite greatness, with all of his perfections, uniting in an infinitely satisfying panorama of beautiful beauty and glory. You guys understand what I'm saying? Like, he's the best. Alright? He's the best. Then of what is he worthy from the human soul? Which is worship and servitude and, and letting him be the Lord of our lives, giving him all trust and all love and honor that we can that the essence of evil, the very essence of every evil we see in our world, is loving, preferring, desiring, treasuring, and enjoying anything above God. It's literally treason. And since God is of infinite worth and beauty and greatness and honor, it is an infinite sin. The failure to love and treasure and enjoy Him above all things is an infinite outrage and worthy of infinite punishment. Do you guys understand what's being said here? Is the, the rejection of God is an infinite sin that is deserving of eternal punishment. Do you grasp that the heinousness of rejecting this perfect being who has made every effort to allow us to be reconciled in relationship with him is the worst thing that we can do. And that every sin that eventuates in our culture, even the most heinous acts, starts with the rejection of God. Okay. Yes, I'm good. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Do people who have never heard the gospel go to heaven? This one, like, plagued me forever. I had such a hard time with this. I was part of the reason that our family chose to go overseas because I was not willing, we were not willing, to allow people to be separated from God because of the lack of knowledge. The problem is, is that Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Peter, in Acts 4.12, says there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The conclusion is simple, guys. There is only one way to get to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. All the religious roads lead to false gods and to a real hell. So the answer is yes and no. And what I mean by that is that there's this other verse in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that says this. It says, For what can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. This will lead us into this next idea of, of how punishment works out. But, but essentially, Scripture says there's not a single person that's ever lived on this planet that has an excuse for rejecting God. You're like, wait a second, how can that be? Because everybody is shown at least a, a, a blinking, a, a hint of light in the darkness of this world. And what God is saying in this moment is that if they respond to the light of Christ by seeing the Creator and recognizing that this world is good and it's designed, it's, it's not some random chance, and, and you go, wow, that makes sense. I've got someone made that, and I'd like to know that God, and then God will respond to that. In fact, we see it in the Old Testament. We see Abraham seeking God, and God shows up. Because God responds to true seekers, to those wanting to know Him. And so, what we have to gather or grasp is that there, while there is no salvation apart from the faith in Jesus Christ, there is no, also no reason to overlook the creativity of God to get the good news out. His creativity includes things like missions. It includes things like dreams and visions and nature. And you can't imagine things that God can use to begin to put the seed of truth into people's lives. We've heard of little grandmothers praying for, for students that come to UAL and, and they snuck a Bible into their, into their backpacks as they showed up as freshmen. And then they met someone from Kyle who invited them in and they've never read the book before. But somehow God opened the door and they have this experience of truth that came into their life. Not because they did something, but because God ran it in front of them. So yeah, Jesus is the only one. Jesus is literally chasing you and me because he wants us to be with him in his Yeah. It's a beautiful story. So, the last uh, question that I want to answer tonight is this. Is punishment the same for everyone in hell? I would say no. Here's why. Luke 12, 48 states that to whom much is given, much will be required. So, uh, we recognize that there are different rewards as people go into heaven. And we also know that sinners will come to judgment. And I can only assume that if they're getting different rewards going to heaven, they're getting different punishments as they go to hell. 
But scripture is this idea that if you've been given much, much is going to be required. You're responsible for much. And so this plays itself out in three major ideas. So the first is the more life you have, the more knowledge you have, the more truth you have, right? The more time and opportunities to respond you have, the worse your sin and the punishment of that sin is. Does that make sense? So the more you have and the more you reject, the worse it is. Which means everyone that's been listening to me for the last 25 minutes, you're in trouble. <laughs> because now you have the truth. And it can set you free. But it can also damn you to a worse punishment in heaven. That's serious stuff. Alright, so the second one is certain sins are more heinous. I firmly believe that things that are more destructive, more blasphemous, <coughs> things that cause more damage in this world, they cause a greater degree of ugliness, horror, horror, and blasphemy will increase your suffering in hell. So this is one of those things that would go back to the same text in Luke that says you've been given much. The less you do with that, the worse you mistreat that, the worse your punishment and responsibility will be. And the last thing that that verse tells me is this is that the greater arrogance, the greater conscious defiance, the insolence and willful rebellion will cause a greater degree of punishment. And the reason that I believe this is because the only unpardonable or unforgivable sin that is mentioned in this entire story of God is willfully and knowingly speaking evil against the Holy Spirit. So what that means is that you know that God exists. You believe in it, you have every understanding about Scripture, about the movement of the Holy Spirit, and you curse the Holy Spirit. And you bad mouth the Holy Spirit. And that's insolence and arrogance, and it's open rebellion against God. And the punishment is even worse. Alright. Yes. Still good? Yeah. <laughs> so, this is what I would consider. Well, let's do this. We're going to read Luke chapter 16, verses 19. Luke 16, verses 19. Yes. We're going to read uh, one of the parables that Jesus told about now. Um, and we're going to glean um, three responses to the knowledge and the belief that hell is not only real, but it will be a place that the world, the humanity that rejects God himself. So three responses that we need to have that this story shows us. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was like a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. I want to pause here. I want you to understand something. First of all, he's laid here, which means he's like, okay? This is not just a poor man. This is a lame poor man who has sores, right? And we're reading the second the dogs like He was wanting and desiring the very crumbs that fell at the rich man's house, at the rich man's table. Which means that his family was so destitute and so desperate for this man to be fed, they thought that they could compel mercy and grace from the rich man by laying him there in front of his door so that the rich man literally had to step over top of him in order to reject. It's also want to note that the Lazarus is given a name in this text. The rich man is not. That is significant in Jewish culture. 
I would draw your attention that names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the, the, the book that keeps you from going to hell and allows you to go to eternity with God. Names that are not written in the book don't. And then the last thing I want to draw your attention to is the actual meaning of Lazarus is that God helped. God helped. So, verse 21 says, You desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, another word for Adam, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So there's a lot of like, theology here. We understand that there's anguish, that there's punishment, all those things. But what's amazing here is that the rich man does not say, get me out of here. Because he knows that he has chosen to go there. This is where he knows that he belongs. The other thing that is amazing to me is Lazarus is ordering Abraham around. And he thinks that Lazarus, not Lazarus, the rich man is ordering Abraham around. And he thinks Lazarus should go do something for him, just like he would have done in the earth. The things have changed. Verse 25 says, But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, still ordering Lazarus around. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's good. So even if Jesus rises from the dead, we're not going to be convinced. So there's three things that I think we have a response to response to this understanding of hell. The first is this gratitude. You look at yeah. I think we should be grateful. I think understanding what hell is and that it exists only displays the greatness of God's love and mercy and hope even more. And the idea that it is a part of God's plan allows God's justice to be displayed. Lazarus, the Bible literally says, the rich man, I'm sorry, literally says that Lazarus received good things even though in this world there was injustice. How many of you guys have paid attention to any news over the last year, right? The world is full of injustice, is it not? It's full of brokenness. When our family lived overseas, it was something we saw on a daily, daily basis. In the United States, a lot of that injustice is, is not on the surface. We don't see it readily with our eyes. We don't see 
broken people who are begging nonstop because of ailments. We don't see people starving to death or, or violent wars uh, that are being waged on innocent victims. We don't recognize that. We read the stories, we see it on TV, but it's not a reality for many of us. But Lazarus is super grateful for justice. And we are going to be grateful for justice when God begins to pull the world up into eternity. We want his justice to be displayed because we don't want eternity to be spoiled again. The next thing that we should be grateful for is the power of the cross. Guys, do you understand that Jesus died and was on the cross for three hours? And for three hours, he was suffering. He spent three days in hell. And after that, the power of the cross is able to save everyone's infinite sin for all eternity. Do you understand the power of the cross? It's the best medicine you could imagine. It's the chemotherapy that kills sin. It's unbelievable. The cross is absolutely necessary. Yeah. I'm grateful for the magnitude of God's love. It's never greater displayed when God was willing to die, even for me, for me. When I'm rebelling against him, he's still being put on that cross, and he's dying over and over again because he loves me. In the depth of grace and mercy and forgiveness, thank you, Jesus. The second thing that I see in this text that, that, that we need to respond is this, is that we need to be compelled to share the good news. What does the rich man do? He's like, I've got to go tell my brothers because this is a bad deal and I don't want them to come here. I've heard it said that Kyle is really, really active and they're crazy Christians that are constantly telling people about Jesus. And they're right. Why? Because we're compelled. Because when I look at what we've been talking about and I look across our campus or across our city, how can I not Tell people about what the good that God has done. How can I not rejoice inside and scream from the rooftops and beg people to enjoy entering into God's love? I'm compelled to do something about it. And so are you. So are you. Set aside the idea that you're not one of those Christians that tells other people about Jesus. Okay? Because you can't do that. That is mutually exclusive. Christians tell people about what God has done. Yeah, no. Period. Good. All right. <coughs> and then the last one. The last response to help is repentance. So at the very end of this story, uh, it says, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. You guys understand what repent means? It's more than I'm sorry. Repent literally means to turn 180 degrees and go the other direction. Okay, so I was going this way, and now I'm going that way. And so this rich man knows his five brothers, they're going the wrong way. And what he wants for them, because there's still time, is for them to have the opportunity to repent. And when we have a cognition of what hell is, just like C.S. Lewis, when it comes into our lives, there is the fullness of knowing who God is, of life, life of heaven, and of hell, the horror of it, our response should be repentance. Lord, forgive me. Help me to walk in your ways. Help me to be among your children. And that's how we should respond. 
Um, I'm actually, we're going to, who's playing on this? Someone's going to be talking. We didn't talk about this. We played the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I was working on that, trying to figure it out. <laughs>
hope it causes all sorts of tough conversations this week. And I hope small group is amazing. And next week when we're in house churches, we can argue about this a little bit more. It'll be great. We'll talk about some other stuff too, don't worry. <laughs> That's what's gonna happen. Why don't you bow your heads and leave ourselves a couple minutes and just talk
You are a suffering God because you love us. And we often choose to reject you. God, let gratitude flow from our hearts and our minds and our lives. Let us be a grateful people who understands our position in this universe. That it's not about us, that we are not humanists, but we are theists. We believe in the one and the true only God. God, that we will be compelled. Lord, I pray this, because if we are not compelled to share, we do not understand what has happened for our lives. If we do not understand, we cannot accept. Lord, I ask that you would help us to repent of sin, realization of, that we've done with sin is contrasted with the severity of hell, we understand that it's a bigger deal than we think. But what we know is that if we're just trying to escape hell, we're missing it. Because heaven is not about that, it's about being with you. And so, Lord, I repeat your prayer that you said so many years ago for those that you love. And I think about this community and the small group leaders and the staff, and I think about how you are looking upon them, and, and your face is smiling. And your heart is yearning, and you are desiring and chasing and pursuing, unrelenting, because you love. And you're saying, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, so that they can see my glory, to see who I really am, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, let it be. Thank you.